Let's talk politics. Hey, don't change the podcast. Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we are talking about political alignments and which ones would actually make sense. For a long time, I wanted to do a uh, mini-series about can a Catholic be a Democrat, a Republican, or a Libertarian? And I think I might get around to doing those eventually. Well, if the good Lord gives me enough patience to control myself from the ensuing ranting and raving I know is possible on those subjects. Um, well, one of those options I do think a Catholic can be. No problem. Another one, eh, they could probably work it. It might be all right. And the third one, absolutely not. But you're going to have to wait till that miniseries one day possibly comes out for all the details. But this here episode grew out of the brainstorming for those episodes. I consistently witnessed silly amounts of inconsistency in policy positions of each of those, well, primarily two, while looking them over. So we're going to be talking today about the numerous tensions that are present in current, contemporary, usually American, political alignments, and what it'd be like if people were actually intellectually consistent instead. So here I am going to present what I think are the two most important political axes. And with these two, it creates one of my favorite tools of comparison, the simple but effective two-by-two grid. So sit back and relax. This episode is not necessarily trying to teach a settled topic or to tell a story like, say, the story of Jonah a few ago or to chat with a guest. Instead, I just want to offer to you a few ways to view the political landscape. We are all perched in our armchairs, or, well, in my case, in my recording pillow fort. And we're just going to be pointing dispassionately at the absurdities of our society while casually gesturing towards a postulated order of sanity as presented by my 2 by 2 grid. Okay, so, um, without any further ado... What's in my two-by-two two grid, you may ask? Well, here are the two big defining features that I want to talk about in what would make up a more rational, coherent political alignment. First, the distinction between the top-down and the bottom-up view. So there are those who want um, organic and free action in society, and there's others who want to focus on top-down rule imposing order on society's parts. And listen, either of these can be appropriate in certain situations, but I think in general, people have a proclivity to prefer one over the other. And this very much influences one's view of how politics, how life together in the polis should actually function. Should it be more top-down? Should it be more bottom-up? The second uh, tension, if you will, I want to look at are between what I'm going to call the moralists and the inclusivists. Now, I almost said the moralists or the objective moralists versus the subjectivists, but I didn't necessarily want to say that because people in this inclusivist section could have objective moral convictions, but just not think that they should in general be um, uh, either enforced or promulgated through all of the polis. So I didn't want to call them subjectivists. Also, I didn't want to say moralists versus people who prefer liberty because, well, morality is a type of liberty. It's the liberty to, uh, to uh, do a certain good thing. So I didn't want to make that the tension. So we're going to have to go with the category of inclusivist. This are, these are people who want to include, accept, and make room for, for a variety of reasons, people with different moral, religious, or cultural perspectives. And I think we all should be inclusivists to an extent, but, um, well, we got to balance it out with that other side, the moralists. The moralist is somebody who insists on an objective morality of one stripe. Now, listen, I do think there's a truth and there's a time to do that, but I think you'll see the tension here. There's the moralist and the inclusivist. All right. So, this forms our grid, and I'll read you the different categories. Here are the bottom-up people. So, the first category are the bottom-up moral inclusivists, 
and I've named the bottom-up moral inclusivists the free market environmentalists, and we'll chat about what they might believe. Then, people who are moralists, but are more bottom-up, I would say these are the classical conservative institution builders. Moving to our top-down section, the top-down moral inclusivists would be what I call the technocratic utility maximizers. And the top-down moralists are called the societal architects. So those are our four categories, the free market environmentalists, the classical conservative institution builders, the technocratic utility maximizers, and the social architects. Now I'm going to read on a few subjects what, what I think these people might say. We're going to cover war, climate change, the poor, and healthcare. So I'm going to make my pitch on each one of these four topics briefly from each one of these four perspectives. First up, Let's hear about the free market environmentalists. So these people are focusing on that bottom-up order, and they're not necessarily trying to impose a type of morality. So they would say, for war, we ought to only make war um, if a society is in an extreme scenario, because we ought to recognize that we are all one human family, we are all one species, and that species thrive through cooperation, not warfare. So if our particular tribe, if you will, or nation is under extreme threat and we need resources, this could justify us going to war in some way. But in general, I think the free market environmentalist would say that as a species, as a human family, we should prefer cooperation and peace as a competitive strategy to war and therefore take more of a pacifist approach. Again, these are not um, moralists, so they're not saying we need to intervene on every right and wrong conflict. Instead, we're basing this more on survival. It kind of keeps us to ourselves more. For climate change, they would say, um, listen, we actually know about these things, and uh, we're going to pretend these environmentalists actually know things, and creatures adapt. Um, so let's use the markets Let's use the price mechanism. Let's, let's price externalities. And let's not be wasteful with our resources in order to stop any problems associated with climate change. So they would reject poorly thought out solutions. They wouldn't be big on government mandates. And this is because they understand that the environment is this natural whole that came from competition, cooperation, survival of the fittest, mutation, adaptation. So the idea that we would fix a climate or a ecological crisis with top-down mandates seems entirely antithetical to their worldview. We should fix it with adaptation and flexibility and creativity and adaptability and markets and prices and free market mechanisms which echo what's going on in the natural world. So what about the poor? Well, here I think that they would comment that hierarchies are normal and natural in every species and that the economically valuable resource of the poor is their labor and we ought to have a market which can efficiently use all resources, including the resource that is their labor. And if we have a truly flourishing free market economy, that's going to yield numerous ecological niches for everybody to inhabit. Just like we see even in places with uh, poor soil, for instance, the Amazon rainforest, terrible soil, we still find little holes and niches for every creature even though there's not actually that many resources to go around. So that's what their view would be. Hierarchies are fine. We shouldn't be trying to enforce equality. Um, and we ought to have a system which is flexible and flourishing so that every resource, including the poorest labor, can be used and they can find their niche. Healthcare. Here, they're going to harshly criticize any top-down maneuvers and propose a free market solution. Maybe something like what Singapore does. Now, Singapore has a 
fairly free market healthcare savings account system, which is paired with a catastrophic fund, which is, I believe, publicly run. And last time I checked, a given operation is one-seventh the cost of the U.S., and they rank higher than us for average outcomes. So that's the best analog I can think of currently for a free market system in healthcare, and it's a seventh the cost and better. So anybody who thinks that the U.S. system is free market, well, <laughs> no. <laughs> that's me restraining laughter at you. Um, it's anything but. It's terrible. We're plagued with monopolies and crazy regulations and subsidies, and it's the least free market thing that you can pretty much get while still appearing like the government's not actually actively running it. So here in the free market environmentalist groups, they understand that bottom-up cooperative order is necessary to have thriving systems, and they would seek to have exactly that in healthcare. They also understand that in the natural world, things die and resources get turned over to the next generation. So they would support things like when you're dying, instead of spending millions of dollars to, say, prolong your life for an extra three, four months, you could forego that treatment, not choose death. Like, you're not going to kill yourself. That's off the table, guys. Um, I mean, that's a very unnatural thing in any species. But you could forego extraordinary treatment, which is extremely expensive, and then use that bundle of resources to, say, uh, give a scholarship to a gifted student who's going to create incredible value for the world. Or maybe fund research of that particular disease so that the next person can have a treatment that maybe you didn't have available. In any case, they would look for a recycling of resources at death and not the individual person to be pulling all the resources to themselves for the last moments of death. I think that's what they would probably be looking for. So let's look at our next category. That was a free market environmentalist. These are the classical conservative institution builders. And some of this you may have heard before. And all these categories aren't going to be a perfect fit, but I'm going to try my best to sum it up in these short paragraphs here. So the classical conservative institution builder for war, they're going to say, you know what? We need to stop evil because we are... We are in the moralist category here. There is good and evil. But we really ought to have public buy-in before we go to war. Because otherwise, it's just the elites going to war and the people along for the ride. Because these are bottom-up people. As for climate change, they would say people ought to make moral choices for themselves. And then we, as a whole, are going to bear the impacts of our societal norms that we helped to create. So, individuals act well. Act prudently. Sometimes you're going to need to burn a lot of fossil fuel. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're going to have competing priorities that you should choose instead of the climate. Obviously. And then, in the end, the type of society, the type of world that us and our institutions help to create will be the one that we get. And we're going to deal with it then. What about the poor? Well, Scripture says that wealth is the crown of wisdom. So they would say that the primary problem with the poor, not all of them, but many, maybe most of them, is that they have a virtue uh, problem. They're impoverished in relation to the virtues. So they would ask, where are the schools and the churches and the civic institutions and the families? Where are the fathers instilling virtue in these people? And how do we support that? How do we address the poverty of virtue so that we have hard work and risk-taking and prudence and we have wisdom? All of these things which are necessary for success. So we got to back up a step and we got to deal with that. Now, for the most unfortunate in particular and peculiar situations, we don't need the ham-fisted idiocy of a blind but benevolent government. We need the precision of a family a group of friends, community. We need the voluntary re-inclusion of the poor into institutions that make their life better. That's their answer. What about health care? What, what does this square say about health care? I think they comment like this. What happened to the free clinics? Hmm? Those are quite popular. There was a time recently within living memory where if you were poor, if you couldn't have health care, if you had something terrible happen, you go to a free clinic and people volunteered. What happened to those? 
put out of business by governments, by ridiculous regulations. Some of them still exist, but this is no longer a societal norm, and it really should be. So we failed in these institutions. We let the government smash this wonderful, voluntary, free, and virtuous way of caring for those people who were in need. So how about we uh, stop insisting that we all vote for a giant wasteful bureaucracy that can and will harm society as evil people take power if they haven't already. And how about instead we just put our money, our money, where our mouth is and not our neighbor's money where our mouth is? How about we cover the cost of people's care instead of insisting that a government take from somebody that's not us to give to somebody else? So institutions is the focus here. So what about our top-down guys? What do we have in these two boxes? The first one are the technocratic utility maximizers. And this is under the moral inclusivists. They're not so keen on pushing morality. They're kind of standing back from that a little bit. They want to open up the Overton window, if you will. Here, they say about war that... um. It can be necessary to secure our place in the world stage. Um, if there's certain policy objectives that we need to use war for, then that should be considered. But we got to look towards the long-term ramifications. Um, climate change, they would say, well, we don't have a very unbiased structure for studying this. So first step would be to create a structure whereby this can be investigated thoroughly from competing perspectives. And we need to have a sum of the costs and benefits that are going to go on in the next few years through a range of probabilities, then we need to be interested in competing solutions. Look at the accompanying costs and benefits and risks and rewards. And then we need to block out black swan scenarios whereby terrible things happen on earth. So we need to try to avoid those or any type of feedback cycles that could cause a runaway change in our climate. And then we need to target a reasonable and sensible increase whereby we're not spending too much of our seed corn today fighting a problem that won't be, um, that would be better adapted to later. So we would need to really focus and study and be prudent and apply reasonable perspectives to this. The poor here, their view would be as utility maximizers that there are gains to be had for society as a whole, if we take resources from those with a lower marginal value of a dollar, so the next dollar doesn't help them that much, and we give it to people with a higher marginal value of a dollar. So people who would really need a dollar. Now, while doing this, we also need to take into account the distortion in human behavior, both from the people we're taking from and the people we're giving to. We need to keep an eye on what's happening in the next situation when these people in the next year encounter taxes and then subsidies. How does that change? And do we still find a societally optimal distribution? Here, people would be looking to solutions like uh, universal basic income. And they'd view it favorably if it replaced existing programs like stepped benefits, which cause people to not want to seek a raise or to seek a job which pays more because they could lose their benefits faster than they make more money. So it would replace stepped benefits or geographically linked benefits, which trap people in areas which don't value their particular labor. So these types of solutions would be on the table for the technocratic utility maximizers. Healthcare. They'd say health is an important metric for a nation. So we might want to apply a tax that discourages negative outcomes like those on tobacco or alcohol or sugar or heavily processed foods, etc. And we could use this and possibly other tax dollars to fund healthcare savings accounts, which would be supported like that Singapore model by a pooled catastrophic fund. And we could also offer health curricula taught in schools, ones which actually rely on good research and not just government lobbying to get you to eat more corn. And we would also either mandate or use nudges to heavily encourage end-of-life plans as the very large percentage, I've heard between 25 and 50% of all healthcare spending in one's life is in the last few months of life, and that can be cut in half with an end-of-life plan. 
which both gives comfort to those who are caring for this person and allows them to not frivolously spend resources that could be going to helping the next generation. Also, under healthcare, we would want uh, things like pharmaceutical drug reform. Um, one wise podcaster once suggested a reform on probably the least listened to episode ever, talking about a Catholic approach to, patent, re uh, to patent regulation, whereby he suggested that um, when a company patents a new drug, we allow them to keep the ownership, but not the exclusive use of it. So we say that just like in many other areas of the market, we must have competition. Therefore, they must license it to a total of three makers of the drug. Now, they can get whatever licensing fee they like, but they have to keep the licensing fee low enough that they get three takers, at which point three competitive groups are now making the drug and selling it and competing on price because quality is held in common. That would be a market-based way to compensate them for the real value of what they got, not the monopoly extracted amount that they could potentially get with no competition. So that would be an example that goes into the technocratic utility maximizer box. And our last category, these are the moralists, but they also focus on the top-down aspect of society. These social architects, they would say, war um, would be would be good if we if we used it to shape a better world, to enforce moral norms on others who are currently pursuing evil and harming people. Because why not? Let's help the world be a better place. As for climate change, uh, we have competing moral obligations. We have obligations to the poor and to the next generation who experience the effects of climate change, whatever those effects specs are. So we need to use our power to shape people's preferences, to want to make sure that the poor flourish and we have a cleaner planet. And we need to punish those people who recklessly abuse the earth and mandate, and we should instead mandate solutions that we have identified as being very much beneficial. And yes, some of that sounds harsh. We're punishing people. We're benefiting other people. But look at the success with the CFCs that we, we blocked off. That was a ban. We had certain refrigerants which were opening up the ozone, which caused a lot of problems. And it's almost entirely healed now because, well, we took action. We said that this is not right. And then we used top-down power to ban and to stop it. Now, under this view, we might also come up with some way to compensate people who experience a higher cost because we decided to fix this problem. Maybe we could subsidize that. Maybe we could tax some things. But at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is use the force of law to establish justice. And yeah, that involves rewarding, punishing, banning, and prescribing. What about the poor? Well, we'd say it's just wrong. It's just not good, at least, that so many people actually struggle. And we got to look to the good, not only of people's materially, but what's it going to look like for a family? How are they going to raise good citizens if both mom and dad are working 12 hours a day just to put food on the table? Where are they in raising the next generation? So instead, we'll have living wages be required because, well, that's the moral thing to do. And hey, if this creates unemployment, then, I don't know, maybe a government program will absorb that labor and use it to take on public projects, kind of like back in the De Great Depression. And we could use it to do things which benefit the common good, things like revitalizing broken communities, renovating downtowns, which are laid waste to. Uh, how about deploying some of this labor in community policing, in areas of high crime, to give people a safe place that they can live? Use it to clean up environments. We can use it to uh, to uh, help those people who um, are currently experiencing a labor shortage and maybe the market hasn't responded yet. Right? The list goes on and on. We'd also identify causes of poverty like crime. And we just stamp it out. With whatever amount of force is necessary, we'll end crime. We'll stop all 
over-the-border drug traffic and lay siege to domestic drug makers. It's time that the war on drugs gets serious. We're also going to identify things which hurt the poor, which stop them from being productive, from forming good families. We are going to outline, uh, outline, ugh. we are going to outlaw, not outline, outlaw um, porn, uh, maybe tobacco, uh, unhealthy foods, or at least we can tax some of these things. Maybe you purchase alcohol too frequently at the ABC store. Maybe we need to impose a limit for the sake of the common good. We can crack down on high interest and predatory loans for the poor. Anything that traps people in poverty, we need to be open to shutting down and ending. What about health care? What do the, uh, the social architects, those people who are moralists and care about top-down solutions, say about health care? Well, many of them might say, hey, this is, if it's not a right, it's just something that people shouldn't go without. It would be better if everybody got health care. So how about this? We could lay out a top-down government program whereby we act on this conviction. And we say that every single person gets a government standard. And employers are taxed in order to fund this. If an employer provides a private solution, which displaces it 100%, then they get 100% rebate on this tax. If they replace it to the tune of 50% of the minimum that the government gives everybody, well, then they get a 50% tax return. And if they replace over and above what the minimum is, then we'll actually match 50% of it all the way up to 200% of the minimum value. We could lay out a system like this, whereby we get total coverage because we just think it's better if we do that. And then we also allow private solutions as they displace the government. But we set a default that meets our moral objective from the very beginning, without exception. All right. Now, that last one, what seems a little bit harsh, and it's my least favorite of the boxes. But if you're like most people, you may have noticed that although each of the groups which I talked about were very different, they all sounded sane. I think we can get where each one of these groups is coming from. We could imagine situations where that might be the right perspective to take, and other times where, no, maybe it's not. Now, the legitimacy of each of these camps seems to come down in large part to prudence and uh as times change, our approaches need to as well. You may have had a favorite box. I, I think I probably have a favorite box up here. Maybe it's tied between two. Um, and I'd say any of these boxes can, can be okay. They can be taken to an extreme. I think in general, we should be looking for somewhere in the middle. Um, not in all political camps, but in the ones that I presented. So let's, uh, let's hear a little bit more from these guys. I have prepared very short um, campaign speeches. Imagine a candidate coming out of each one of these boxes to tell you why they ought to be elected. We're going to start with the free market environmentalists. Here's this guy. Aristotle said that the man who can live in nature self-sufficiently is either a beast or a god. What he observed is the harshness and severity of our natural world. Either we forfeit every comfort and descend to the level of a beast, or we would need a supernatural power to defeat the forces of the environment. Well, that is, if we acted alone. If Aristotle could see the world we've built today, he would conclude that we had supernatural help. And maybe we did. But one thing that he would not conclude is that we acted alone. Man is a social species like none other, forged in the brutal competition endemic to the millions of years of evolution preceding us. Our secret to success has always been each other, both through cooperation and competition, leading to innovation, invention, and marvelous use of the world that we have come to master. The moralists imagine that their contrived morality and the insistent implication thereof can somehow trump the action of the whole human species functioning as a unified whole in tune with the environment that we have shaped and has come to shape us. They strike at the basis of progress itself by halting self-interested action and persuading us to pursue 
objectives that they deem fit according to their bespoke morality. Now, the top-down insanity that has gripped the narrow and ignorant minds of the elite and their bootlicking acolytes is nothing but a call for monocropping humanity with the latest idea du jour by tilling up the roots of the diverse and native modes of human action stemming from the organic whole of a self-regulating humanity. Vote for me. All right, um, as you can see, you get this combination of the, the, the economic and the environmental. They focus on this bottom-up. They reject the imposition of uh, reality and the shaping uh, from the top down. Um, yeah, but there are some good things here. We also see that, yeah, they're right, that working together through cooperation and competition have yielded an incredible world in a world that we have come to master. We are indeed part of nature. God set us here. So um, we have the right to have dominion over the earth and through the markets, we actually did it. We have dominion over it. I have dominion over the temperature in my house, the amount of light that comes in, and all sorts of other things, and so do you. Next group, next speech, we have the, uh, the classical conservatives, the institution builders, if you will. Here's what they might say. There is right and wrong, true and false. These are embedded deeper into the fabric of reality than any species or element or social construct or law or idea that has ever been. We could go extinct, my free market and environmentalist friends, and your businesses could go bankrupt, but truth and goodness will stand forever. Then there are those who twist the truth to their own destruction. And you don't need scripture to make that case. Look at the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, the numerous socialist dumpster fires in our own time, or even the rapid rise of gender ideology bent on mutilating our children. It is ours and every generation to defend that good and true and beautiful that we find in society, to preserve and to promote it through institutions, strongholds of authentic liberty that can stand up to the blows of an enemy nation just as well as it can stand up to the thumb of an oppressive government. Next up, we have the technocratic utility maximizers. Here's what they might say if they're seeking the, your vote. Governments exist to govern, to manage society such that it allows the citizen to flourish in the ways that they seek to flourish. As the saying goes, you can't manage what you can't measure. We seek to measure what we can and manage what we must in response. Social science and economics, these help us identify changes and nudges that can powerfully increase the overall well-being of society. And if we forego these opportunities, we forego our role as a government. We love markets, but just as a gardener loves plants, but prunes, weeds, and tills a garden to make the best produce, our goal is to do the same with the economy, carefully as not to damage the plants, but purposefully to destroy what is parasitic or wasteful and transform what would be a wild laissez-faire laissez cultivar into something more humane. We stand for prudent and professional management, not ideological transformation or unregulated innovation. We stand for trains on time, regardless of where they're headed, cities clean and safe, irrespective of who decides to inhabit them, and predictable and robust economic growth, however you wish to dispose of your new wealth. And finally, the social architect... <clears throat> Cain's descendants go on to found the evil cities of earth that wage war against the kingdom of God. The constitution of the evil city is everywhere and always the constitution of Cain. His famous words, am I my brother's keeper? We answer not as the moral inclusivists do, and not as the limp-wristed bottom-up proponents would. We answer in the affirmative. Yes, Cain, you are your brother's keeper. You failed, but we will not. 
Society is not to be left to the whims of the masses and the impulses of our lowest and most base selves. Instead, we must rationally and willfully govern, just as Plato's Republic illustrates, just as Scripture indicates when it says that the government punishes evil and rewards the good in its role as the servant of God. And the servant of God must always sacrifice. That, after all, was the righteous path of Abel the just. And we too at times must sacrifice some of our freedom to promote virtue, economic growth to support family and religious life, and even our blood and treasure to lift other nations out of the grip of the city of Cain. Who are you voting for, guys? Well, let's go through a few pros and cons of each. And uh, yeah, then I want to talk about how uh, ridiculously inconsistent our current ideologies are. All right, so the first ones, free market environmentalists. The pros are they support markets. They recognize the complexity of human life, the, the economy, the environment, etc. And they seek to rule as God rules. Why? Because God set up a system whereby the resources of the earth move about, whereby many creatures flourish and find their niches. He set up the natural order, and it does indeed survive on very laissez-faire principles. So they offer that as a mode of governance, at least economically. And also, another pro is this is very democratic. It allows a lot of individual freedom. That's certainly the focus. Now, the cons are, under this system, we could be tempted to think that survival equals morality, and that we could be negligent of bringing about the good, not just economically, but what's morally good. So that would be the fault. Pros and cons, the uh, conservative institution builders. Pros, institutions are in fact vital, terribly important, and a hedge against tyranny. Without institutions, universities and churches and civic institutions and, and groups of friends and fam, all these things, without all of that, all there is is the individual and the state. And guess who loses when they fight? So institutions, vital. They help to make a country more civilized. They help to join people together in a variety of disparate common loves. They allow us to create a common culture, one that's cooperative and not just competitive like it would be if we're all fighting for the top of the heap in one and only one hierarchy. And it also very much respects the Catholic doctrine of subsidiarity. We have various spheres of influence and we have lots of solutions coming down at the lowest level. Now the cons are, sometimes this can... Uh, this can ignore the fact that the government is an institution too, and that while our civic societies are formative, so is government, and we do need an eye towards the forming power of law and of uh, regulation, things like that. So we just have to keep in mind that government's an institution too. We should apply the same ideas of bringing about civilization, properly ordered, good things to society um, in the realm of politics, and I think many do. Next, the technocratic utility maximizer. Now, the pros are um, we do want to be prudent. We do want to be scientific and exacting. We do want to be very careful whenever we make changes for a large system of any type. We do need analysis and careful management. And if we start with where we are now, we have what is it, 45% of our entire economy is spent by state, local, and federal government, which is so stupid and insane, I can't feel my legs. Well, we should hope they spend it wisely. So we do need some of this technocratic utility maximizing where we are now and to get us to where we would like to be in the future, for sure. Now, the cons are there's a temptation to hubris that, well, we could just manage everything. We could know everything. Why, we control what the little people can't possibly understand. And it can also cause an absent-minded leveling of other people's priorities where you have the things you want to bring about or imagine that other people want you to bring about. And you do that instead of allowing people to reveal their own preferences in a distributed free market system. And finally, it's always a temptation to have utility trump morality. 
And we can't have that. Which leaves us with our last category, the societal architects. The pros are, it's good to punish evil people. It's great. It's also good to reward good people. Um, and sometimes we lose focus of that. It's a pretty clear injunction in Scripture that that's, what's, that's what government's supposed to do. So if they're not doing that, that is indeed a failure. Now, the cons are that this can lead to tyranny. If we hand the sword to the state and the state is evil, we just made a giant boo-boo. We just handed a sword to an evil state. That is an awful idea. So the cons are oftentimes people imagine that the government would certainly do the right thing if we gave them power. Well, why wouldn't they? But they ignore that that is... That is not true. That is often wishful thinking. So the other problem with this is that oftentimes, and this is more a criticism of like the new right who are kind of societal architect and bent, they want to close down our natural environment and restrict it too far. And our natural environment, dear listener, is um, a space of freedom whereby we can be truth seekers and good finders. And if you don't believe me, go back to the Church and State episode on freedom. Um, it begins with a William Wallace scream of freedom. You'll know when you find it. So closing down this space of freedom means that we can't function as true human people. We need freedom, freedom even to fail. God gave us this, even in the Garden of Eden. So when we rule others, we need to allow people the choice to do evil sometimes. That freedom must be there. So that's, that's a problem here. Societal architect can get so zealous in rewarding good and punishing evil that it becomes impossible to do evil and the good becomes compulsory. Not only can that flip to be the very opposite, but that in itself is not optimal. All right, you may be wondering, where is your favorite podcaster on this chart? Now, I can't speak for John DeRosa, but I will tell you where I am. I'm actually kind of in the middle. I'm a frothing-at-the-mouth free marketer who believes in things like property rights and markets. And I believe that we can manage the environment with these things, and we certainly should, much better than just top-down controls. I value institutions, and I buy the arguments about how vital virtue is to freedom and flourishing. And most free marketers do, by the way. Um... I think that, especially in the situation we find ourselves in today with massive reliance on social systems, I support reforming them in a way which is intelligent, to manage them in a way that is prudent, and then maybe finding a path to remove them so that we can eventually have markets and good institutions in their place instead of just relying on the state. I've advocated for things like ESAs, education savings accounts, and HSAs, healthcare savings accounts, and those to slowly replace things like public schools and public uh, Medicaid and Medic uh, Medicare programs. Um, and yeah, an intermediate would be to use public funding to fill those things up. And that's kind of a technocratic thing. And I see this as a good um, way to get from where we're at to something which is more institution and free market driven. And finally, I have a touch of the social architect too. I believe in strong laws banning things like prostitution, pornography, most drugs, um, teaching evil gender ideology, or race and gender and Marxism trash in public schools. I think that if uh, we're in a current situation whereby they say you cannot teach religion in schools, we ought to classify that as a religion because it is and say either we're going we're gonna to break off and do a variety of competing private schools, my choice, or we need to be truly neutral. I won't push my religion, but you can't push yours. We're going to just have to learn math and English and things. Crazy. I know. I mean, parents to actually inculcate values. Wild. Anyways, <laughs> I'm a blend of these and in various situations, I might lean more towards one or more towards another. All right. Um, but what do we actually have? That's kind of describing two reasonable axes, um, the four squares that are created there, and then what each square 
um, we would find in it because we don't find free market environmentalists. Um, we we don't <laughs> we don't find. Um, I wish we found the technocratic utility maximizers as described. Instead, they're typically ideological. So what do we find in reality? And why did I say at the beginning of the episode that they are just, most of them, not internally consistent, and therefore they can't be true? Well, we're going to find out right after this brief break. All right, let's talk about this wild and ridiculous tension between um, free markets and uh, the study of the environment. Uh, Quick story. I went to a place called Liberty University. Very conservative, free market kind of place. When I got there, I'm like, okay, hey, you guys support free markets, right? They're like, yeah, 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 totally. Um, Central direction, recipe for mismanagement, corruption, failure. Hayek's theory of local knowledge means that individuals acting with their own little piece of information can interface with one another in markets, adding all the information of humanity into things like prices that then move resources with incredible efficiency, taking into account all the factors from all the market actors with all of their marginal desire to supply and demand. Thus, we have a vastly complex worldwide ecosystem of market participants creating niches and deploying new and novel ways to extract, transfer, and transform resources in a free and distributed way. And I'm like, guys, that sounds great. That's so cool. But hey, what's that building behind you? Oh, that's our creationism museum. How could the environment possibly be complex and well-managed with such diverse and incredible species without top-down direction and central planning? Competition and ecological entrepreneurship could never create such a system. Um, really? (laughs) Do you guys hear yourself talk? How does your mind not just explode with this type of paradigmatic contradiction? And then I went to hang out over at UVA, because my wife was getting her PhD in environmental sciences. I'm like, hey, guys, I, uh, I see that you understand the fact that competition, natural selection, yielded an incredible and sustainable system that generates, transfers, and transforms numerous resources across the whole entire planet. And you deeply care about how species find ecological niches, They specialize, adapt, and cooperate all out of self-interest. This is a nearly sacred and untouchable order that would be terrible to disrupt because it's it's natural, it's organic, it's bottom-up. You guys defend every single little owl and every single little owl den that could be run over by an excavator. You care about this natural, organic, bottom-up spontaneous order. Awesome. That's good. You know, maybe we need to run over the owls sometimes, but yeah, hey, this is good. I'm glad that you understand this concept. Hey, what's that protest group behind you? Oh, those are the democratic socialists who are supporting placing economic power in the hands of a government to decide on behalf of people, markets, and businesses what large-scale decision ought to replace the cooperative and competitive economic system of natural order that spontaneously emerged in a distributed and natural system. You know, we could never let free markets be trusted with the use of the planet's resources. Mind blown again, guys. What on earth? Did humans stop being part of nature? Are we robots, gods, aliens? A beaver chops down some trees and makes a dam and you call it an ecological engineer. But her actual ecological engineer makes a dam and you call him a monster. <laughs> Good night. Cyanobacteria floods the atmosphere with the highly reactive element oxygen for millions of years and you call that natural. Then we add some CO2, us, animals, you know, us. And now we have to sit in our fair trade hemp sackcloth and beg Mother Gaia for forgiveness. Whew. Ridiculous, guys. It's this, it's this level of... of cognitive dissonance and unbelievable contradiction, which I can't possibly understand how it exists in somebody's head. But it does. It does. And it does all the time. (laughs) 
You see, the connections between economics and ecology are very deep. First, we are part of nature. Next, as someone who has studied both fields, even many of the mathematical formulas that we use for modeling um, are shared between ecology and economics. And heck, Charles Darwin said, and I quote, my studies consist in Adam Smith and Locke, John Locke. And if you look deeper into his intellectual influences, you will find that um, he was BFFs with free market advocate Sir James McIntosh. We hang out, hung out with quite frequently. And Darwin was influenced by the writings of Henri Milne Edwards, who explained the, some aspects of the Brazilian rainforest by using Adam Smith's ideas of division of labor from the theory, from the, uh, from the Wealth of Nations book, not the theory of moral sentiments. Darwin actually had this dude's book on the HMS Beagle. So, the only intellectually consistent positions are to hold that evolution and the natural world are impossible and that we ought to have top-down governance of the economy. That would be intellectually consistent. I don't think that's correct. Or we could take another incorrect, but at least intellectually consistent view of saying that, um, um, I'm sorry, but yeah, so the other, so we have one intellectually consistent is that evolution's impossible and we need top-down governance. That's intellectually consistent. The other intellectually consistent view is to say that we do believe that there's natural world which exists through natural selection and things like this. And that we also believe in free markets. We could just call under this theory, uh, free markets, human ecology. This is just how humans work. So those are the two intellectually consistent positions. Mashing the two together just seems ridiculous. As an example of this ridiculous, unbelievable blindness, economist Tony Annette, while criticizing free markets, said or implied that God would not want resources to be moved based on self-interest and competition. To which I responded that God did design a system, Tony. It's called the natural order, and it looks a heck of a lot like a free market. That's what God chose uh, to use to make nature flourish and the resources of the earth be used. So I do invite you to go back and listen to my critique episode of Tony Annette's um, silly little ideas about what Catholic economics should be. I shredded those and it was a ton of fun and it's a fun listen. It's about an hour and 45 minutes of going through it and I, it's well worth it. Um, all right. Well, here's another thing. So that's one huge inconsistency. We find people all the time accepting one side of the coin and rejecting the other. I don't know how they don't see that. But but there are more. There are more. Um, so the new right and the progressive left, which are in many, many ways kind of the kind of mirror images of each other, um, have a few problems. One is the new right is very much gung-ho about right and wrong and enforcing laws, which laws being always reduced to the use or the threat of violence to achieve justice. And then, after all this talk about how we need to use violence to achieve justice, use law, use enforcement to bring about the right order, to stop evil people, to punish the evil and reward the good, after all this talk... Something happens like, I don't know, the invasion of Ukraine or the disgusting inhuman attack on Israel by Hamas. And then all of a sudden, the new right become pacifists. I mean, where did that happen? And then they don't appeal to right and wrong, but to our nation's self-interest. I thought you were chiding us about focusing on self-interest when we were defending markets. But now here you are. We're always told that we ought to sacrifice economic growth to uh, give things like, I don't know, paid family leave for all. But in a neck-snapping twist, they're now counting every penny that supports a nation assaulted by a clearly evil power. All of a sudden, we can't sac sacrifice economic growth for that. So we can sacrifice economic growth for family leave, and we, sh we shouldn't count the cost. But... When, that, when a similar family over, say, in Ukraine, 
Um, well, they're having some even bigger problems by being shelled by Russian artillery. Well, we were a little short on cash. Now, you can take a variety of positions on this, but you have to see that that's a pretty big inconsistency. Either you care about right and wrong, and you will enforce this even with violence, or you won't. And there's the progressive left. Now, we could do an entire series on all of the crazy inc inconsistencies here, because there are many. Um, but let's just take a big one. They're big on seeking to be these, uh, kind of taking the societal architect track and saying there's certain speech that's wrong, positions to hold that we cannot abide. And they'll go after uh, companies and politicians and individuals and academics, and they'll seek to silence or beat these people down. Why? Because they're societal architects and they want to bring about a certain society. They have a very uh, sure view of what is right and wrong and in and out, and uh, they're willing to use uh, force to, to do that, right? Big, bold people they are, speaking, quote-unquote, truth to power. And then they bump into an Islamic nation. And where's all the moralizing go, guys? How come you all of a sudden, after picking out every single wrong thing that people do here in the U.S. in this weird autoimmune type insanity, you now just turn a blind eye to the whole scale subjugation of women in countries? Or I thought you were all about, what was it, the gay rights and things, but you're fine with Islamic Countries having laws whereby you can push gay people off a roof. What happened to your moral absolutism? Where did your, your, your desire to use power to stop what you think is evil go? It's all out the window, huh? Where is your consistency? So these ideas that we should just turn a blind eye to everything going on in Islamic nations... And we need to freak out about every possible thing we perceive as wrong in our own nation and use violence to stop it. These don't make sense. Either you're up for using power to stop evil or you're not. Now, again, um, we could name so many other inconsistencies. Okay, let's name one or two more. Um, how about the one where they say native people ought to get their lands back? And then we're like, cool. What about the Jews who have continually been inhabiting Israel since, I don't know, Abraham? Oh, yeah, no, not the Jews. Okay, how about this one? We shouldn't oppress people who are weaker or more vulnerable or people just because they look different than us. Oh, yes, and the left also says it's fine to kill babies at a massive scale who are weaker and more vulnerable because they don't look like us. The sheer scale of contradictions in the progressive left is truly embarrassing. This many lies in one spot. I know who Legion would be voting for. <laughs> All right, um... We've picked on them. Let's talk about the libertarians. I think there's ways which libertarianism can be all right, but you got to be careful with this stuff, and it's not always applicable. Here's one thing which I'm going to point out. They often make a correct and moral case for the defense of private property and markets, and they correctly argue that it's not only moral for individuals um, to have private property and engage in markets, but it also conduces to the common good. All that's great. However, in the next breath, they might be advocating for the legalization of drugs and prostitution. So what happened to this concern for the common good? And what happened to the importance of your morality? I thought it was a moral case for free markets. What happened to this objectivity of morality when we got to, say, prostitution? And they would affirm that certain contracts are unenforceable by the state because of, say, moral hazard. Or they're invalid because of fraud. But what about the contractual arrangement with a prostitute? Isn't that morally hazardous? And isn't that an empty promise of procreation preying on the most base instincts of mankind? Is anything more fraudulent than that and in the highest degree? That's an inconsistency. So... Libertarians, they understand um, that in markets, there are, um, just like in, in nature, there are parasitic organisms. And if we're going to live in society, we do need to take steps to um, clear out the forest of such things. Um, but at times, even though they should have this understanding, they can be 
in some cases, not all libertarians, a little bit too reticent to have the uh, pruning shears of the state come in and snip out some parasitic organisms. There can be a place for that, guys, but that's, that's a little bit of an inconsistency. You understand that in an ecological and economic paradigm, but can be too reticent to actually um, engage in pruning these things out for the flourishing of the whole. Um, let's see, other criticisms I have of them. Um, yeah, I mean, in some cases we have, uh, um, and this is not all of them, but many reject an overall binding morality and accept a survival of the fittest competitive environment as the best for long-term flourishing. And, uh, I think that if you do this, then why wouldn't you be a, why wouldn't you be a pacifist? And uh, I think some are, but some certainly aren't. But it's, or, I mean, why would you be a pacifist at this point? If you believe in survival of the fittest, then why wouldn't you allow nations as a whole to compete? Now, at that point, I guess you could appeal to, say, property rights. But with no objective morality, you can only ground those on utility. And further, thinkers like Locke would argue, and this has some merit, that if you don't use land, then somebody who does could take that title from you. Uh, for instance, if you just have a vast farm, but you don't farm it, somebody could come and farm it and then lay claim to it because you let it lay fallow. And that's, I believe, in, that's certainly in English law. I believe it's in, uh, it found its way in a variety of U.S. laws as well. Um, so can't we argue for that maybe uh, Africa is a large, vast, unused set of natural resources. Therefore, would it be okay if we just laid claim to their property by beginning to take those natural resources? Well, the world would be wealthier. That would be, that would be uh, wonderful uh, on the grounds of utility. It meets one of our tests of the true ownership. But I don't think most libertarians would at all support going into another nation, taking their resources, and then using those for our own economic growth. That seems to go against many of their more pacifist principles. And that's fine, but you got to realize you don't really ground being a pacifist and all of the things which I named earlier in one coherent system. There's, there's an inherent tension. So you might have to look past your paradigm to understand why you would reject just going into another nation, taking their resources, why you would actually want to affirm property rights in an objective morality and not just on the grounds of utility. And I know those critiques didn't sound quite as mean and damning as the others because I'm not as mean and damning of this ideology. But I do think there's some tensions and problems there. Which brings us to the end of this episode, where I just want to talk about the importance of coherence. Um, if I have a set of 15 things which I say are facts, and they all disagree with each other, every single one is somehow in tension with another, that means the maximum number of things I could get right is one, because <laughs> everything is disagreeing. So if you're looking at a political ideology, for instance, and you see that there's a lot of things which are proposed, but it's not internally consistent, then this, you don't have to know anything about politics to know that if it's not internally consistent, everything they're saying can't be true by definition. It's a limited amount of facts that could possibly be right. I think what we've seen from this episode, that I didn't get it terribly into it, is that a more progressive leftivism is absolutely riddled with inconsistencies. And from that place alone, we can conclude that it is least likely to be correct. Now, there's a libertarianism I also critiqued, and that seems to have not quite as bad inconsistencies, but inconsistencies nonetheless, which means it could be true just from this very casual way of, of assessing them. And then finally, I gave four coherent views. Now, you could say that they're wrong, but at least they make sense within their own paradigm, right? And uh, one of those was a more conservative view. Um, and I don't really have that many internal coherent critiques of it. Not, not really. It's, it does make sense. So truth never contradicts truth. Um, and uh, I think that uh, some of these views get at more truth than others. 
Um, they all come from different paradigms. The left's typical paradigm is the oppressor versus oppressed, but that only captures a very tiny sliver of the real world of truth. And in the case of the dominant libertarian paradigm, that's where everything is pitched as consent versus coercion. And this is better, but it's also not illustrative of the whole. It doesn't actually ground itself in anything terribly firm. The conservative view makes sense um, and is characterized by a civilization versus barbarism paradigm. Now, that can be made too simplistic, um, but overall, that is a pretty good lens. And if you want to have a full picture of what civilization is, well, I think that's going to need to be inclusive of religion. At which point, yeah, if we define civilization to include, let's say, the conception of the city of God, and we recognize that that's what we're asking for in the Lord's Prayer when we say, your kingdom come, then yes, it is civilization. It's your kingdom come. It's the city of God versus barbarism. And barbarism here is the chaos and dysfunction of sin. So this is a good lens. And that's why we don't see that it has massive coherence problems. It, it doesn't. It tracks truth a lot better than the other ones who only get a piece of it. However, conservatives modern conservatives can get a bit stilted and stiff. Um, not all, but many. So I think we need to shift to different parts of the four square diagram that I gave, um, that I presented here, um, in the same way that a goalie shifts in anticipation of a shot on gold. We need a dynamic conservatism, one that grants freedom to be good and truth seekers and also promulgates law to make finding those things a little bit easier. One that honors the doctrine of subsidiarity by respecting both the top-down and the bottom-up aspects of reality, understanding the two sides of subsidiarity, that we ought to have governance at the lowest level possible, but the highest level necessary. And I think when we do those things, we do get the benefits of all those things that we mentioned in that four square, even as we move them, uh, move around there uh, based on prudence in order to meet the challenges that our culture presents at any given time. Whew. Guys, thanks for listening. I know politics can be a bit of a drag talking about it. I try to keep a, a view a little bit um, abstracted from the ins and outs, and I don't typically comment on news or individual politicians and whatnot. I want to keep it to the realm of ideas, um, and I think we have today. If you do want me to do that, uh, that deep dive into can you be a Democrat? Can you be a Republican? Can you be a Libertarian? I could be persuaded to uh, somehow put that together. So shoot me an email about that. Um, also, if you have other examples of incoherence in popular ideologies, um, shoot that my way. I, I think that'd be interested to build out that list. I only named a few things. I'm sure there's many more. And you can email me about anything whatsoever um, I always love to hear from you guys at thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. And I do invite you to uh, throw a rating and review on this show. Um, if you're listening to this, I don't think you've done it. So <laughs> go ahead and help me out. And please do that too so people can find the show. All right. Well, I hope you join me for next episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>